We're going to be talking about Pentecost today. Uh, this is our topic on your handout there, the day of Pentecost. Uh, you know these holidays come up, Pentecost and Passover and, and some of the other uh, uh, celebrations uh, that uh, help remind us of the kind of sequencing and the movement of God through the year. When I was a pastor, I used to use the church calendar. Uh, I, didn't, I t- think I told you, I, did, I didn't let anybody know it because uh, I was in a, in, a, in a non-denominational church. They'd probably run me out. But I used the church calendar because I thought it's a way to be able to balance the diet of the church. Uh, you know, you work in the Old Testament during, this, uh, during the fall as you work toward Advent. And then you work from Advent to Christmas or the Old Testament prophecies, and then then at Christmas uh, you start in, or after Christmas you start in the Gospels through through up working up the life of Jesus up to uh, Easter. Then after Easter, the resurrection appearances and his uh, teaching to them, and then on Pentecost uh, you study in the Book of Acts in the summer. You study in the Book of the Epistles, and through the through the fall you come back to the Old Testament. And I just always thought it was a way to balance the diet. You know, you ever. You ever think sometimes uh, the, the diet sometimes of teaching or the diet sometimes of preaching needs a little more balance? Uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes feel like, you know, uh, I, I, I need to balance it out. So that's one of the reasons why we do this is to say there are some things, there are some realities here that, that uh, we need to make sure we touch on. And the church calendar, in some sense, forces us to do that forces you to move through those passages, forces you to move through those sections, forces you to move through those sort of high marks uh, in the church calendar. So that, that's why we're doing that. Uh, that's a, an important, we think, a distinctive of, uh, of uh, what we consider to be a good balanced diet. So today we're going to be talking about Pentecost. Now, um, I'm going to start here with this because I've said to you before, and I'll show you again on the, on the chart here, it's my judgment, my, my opinion, I think I have some evidence for this today, that really the goal of God's activity, the goal of all of God's activity, that goes way back, all of God's activity is Pentecost. It's curious to me that in a lot of evangelical churches that it gets little attention or little interest when you consider that, if you will, that from time immemorial, that what God is doing is restoring his presence to the people of God that lost it, if you will, in the garden. And the means of doing this, the means of getting to the goal, is through the family of Abraham. There is this uh, uh, understanding. He picks a family to re- restore. This is kind of some area I've got there for your, your uh, hand out there to give you some information to draw and write on the front. Begins to work with a family of Abraham to restore the, na- the world. He's trying to do a rescue mission, if you will, for the world. And so it begins all the way back with Abraham to restore God's presence to his people and works up that. Then we get this and we move forward to the person of Jesus in the incarnation where he teaches us about life and he teaches us about how to live. And then there is his death and resurrection that uh, deals with the matter of reconciliation and dealing with our sin debt and restoring us in relationship to him. It wasn't that God was out of relationship with us. It was we were out of relationship with him. Uh, Ephesians, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 said, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to him. God, we did, God didn't have to get reconciled to us. We had to get reconciled to him. The problem wasn't on God's end. He wasn't upset. He wasn't trying to kill us or condemn us. He's trying to reconcile us to himself. And so we have all that, which seems to suggest that in all of this, all of this is moving in this direction. All of this is moving in that direction. 
So the day of Pentecost, that's the, I'm going to call it the word, the goal of God's activity. This is related to a couple of things that I'll share again, but it's related to this idea that after Jesus raises from the dead, I've said this several times, but after he raises from the dead, you would think he's conquered death and sin and the devil, that the next thing he would say is sick them, right? Go. But what does he say? Wait. Wait. Do not go yet. Wait until you receive what the Father has promised. That was Jesus' instructions to those people. Why? Because it's not over yet. It's not complete. It's not finished. And so this idea of a goal, that this is really the day, in my judgment, that we should celebrate, we should remember, we should emphasize, we should understand that everything is moving in this direction. Now, when I think of goals, you know, I've told you before that... um, when students come to me sometimes, they will come say to me, uh, you know, Cliff, uh, would you marry us? And of course, I say, what? I'm already married. I can't marry you. Are y'all awake? <laughs> I make my living with words, okay? So they'll say, oh. And I say, yeah, I mean, we can talk about it. I never make a commitment on the front end. It's like saying, I'm going to sell you a car you want to buy. Nope, let me look at it. Uh, So I say, well, I don't know. We have to talk. But I said, here's the deal. Probably where we are is that you want to talk to me about a wedding, and I want to talk to you about a marriage. And those are two different goals, aren't they? Those are two different goals. In fact, I was thinking yesterday, please, all the guys in the room, don't don't knock down my man card here. Okay? I did not watch this. <laughs> um, but the whole world yesterday seemed to be just fascinated, and that's okay, uh, with this, inc- this wedding that occurred in England. I did not get up at 4.30. I just want that to be known. And I only watched the reruns because the Rifleman only had two episodes on yesterday. <laughs> I'm getting hold of AMC and said, hey, buddy, I want to see the ri- I've seen all of them, but I want to see them again. So I looked at some of this stuff and have watched it a little bit. And, you know, and I thought when I'm looking at this picture on the right there with that dress, I said, wow, she had on Becky's dress. Right. Yeah, that's what Becky wore at our wedding. Yeah. Uh, And this incredible pomp and circumstance. Did anybody hear how much was spent on this wedding? What'd you hear? Yeah. Well, the the, the last number I got was 42.8 million dollars 42.8 don't some of you dads feel better now (laughs) don't some of you dads got missed that one 42 43 million dollars now you know i I, listen we all hope them well i mean you know none of us are you know so small we we want them to do well Uh, it was an incredible preparation you know i wanted to watch it because i wanted to see the chapel that thing looked like a cathedral to me. St. <laughs> George's Chapel. I thought, man, that doesn't look like a chapel. I wanted to see the cathedral. I was somewhat interested in Michael Curry's uh, sermon, uh, the Episcopal priest. Uh, yeah, they said he was kind of Pentecostal. And uh, so I settle down, relax. Some of you Presbyterians, are, settle down, settle down. It's going to be all right. I promise. I promise. It's going to be okay. Uh, I want to go listen to the entire and hear all of it. Listen. So we all wish them well. But you know what? And I, this may be a hard turn for you here, but this. 
But that $42.8 million and that ceremony and all of those things do not guarantee a good marriage. Right? So if the goal of that ceremony was to just show the world an incredible, if you will, ceremony, which, you know, it was. If the goal wasn't to say, how can we, whatever we're doing here with the resources we have, that the goal of this is that we might live a life of commitment and love to one another after this event, wonderful event, wonderful, not, not saying it's bad, but what's an awe-inspiring. So the goal of this incredible wedding and ceremony is to have a lasting, fulfilling, growing marriage. Now, I want to suggest to you again that as I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading what the Word of, Word of God says and what Jesus said on different occasions, that I really believe that as wonderful as all of this is, and I'm certainly not trying to balance this out in, in terms of importance, as wonderful as all this is, in my opinion, and again, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions of Christ Community Church, it's elders or leadership, <clears throat> that if we miss this, if we miss this, we've missed the goal. We've missed the goal of what God prepared for his people. And I want to try to work us through that in a, in a, in a, in a several uh, ideas here. So on this, I think, on your handout, I've got a couple of things. Let's talk about the day of Pentecost first, the day of Pentecost. And I, I think that's, uh, you still have room to write, don't you? Yeah, here we go. The day of Pentecost. Uh, it's 50, 50 days or seven weeks, according to the Jewish calendar. It's seven weeks, seven Sabbaths after Passover. And that celebrates um, the, the, the bringing in of the harvest, which I think is always fascinating. It really is what they call first fruits. Uh, this is about harvest time in Israel, uh, usually the later part of May. So it can even go into June uh, because of the lunar calendar, the way the Jewish calendar works. It's the bringing in of the first fruits. It's bringing to God the, the tithe or the tenth of the first fruits to say, thank you, God, for what you've done here. And so it's the... That, that ceremony, it's not without some importance, I think, that when we look at that, that we see on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is bestowed on people, there's a great ingathering of people. So it was an ingathering, if you will, of first fruits of the harvest. And now we see on the day of Pentecost this incredible ingathering of people in some ways from every tribe and every nation. It says, you know, that there were... Uh, 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 Parinthians and Egyptians and all kinds of nations. Go back there and read Acts 2. That it's not just people from Israel. It's, it's this incredible ingathering of people from all these different tribes and tongues and dialects. Somebody asked me, would I speak on the, the matter of tongues in this section? And I said, uh, next year. No. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let me just say a real quick thing, and it may require some more attention. Um, the big debate in, in my, <clears throat> now you're getting, <clears throat> excuse me, my opinion on this. Here's the data. I'll give you the data. In Acts chapter 2, when it says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, and the, all of them were speaking in tongues. The Greek word in there, in that text, is dialectos. And it means we hear them speaking in our own dialect. Because you've got Medes and Corinthians and, and uh, Jebus, you know, all those different groups. We hear them in our dialect. In other words, that's the Greek term for English, Spanish, you know, German, that. 
So that's what we hear. Interesting, notice it says this, we hear them. We hear them. And so in the book of Acts, it appears, I would suggest, that it's going to be a real quick deal. We may require more attention later. It is clear to me, and I think to almost anyone that reads it, that these are languages. They're just languages. If you go to 1613, when King James was translated, <clears throat> you have to look at the language that's used in King James. If you go to the front of the Bible, I don't know that anybody has any of those anymore. We went to the Museum of the Bible. We saw a couple of them. And uh, in, the, in the front of it says, diligently researched and translated from the original tongues. That's what it says in the preface of the King James Bible. So if this is the King James Bible, 1613, what does the word tongues mean in 1613? Languages. <clears throat> right? I mean, I don't, it's hard to get around that one. So the word glossolalia is the other term that's used. It just means speaking. Glosso. Now the big question is, <clears throat> and there's a lot of debate here, that it appears that the, 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 the experience of the phenomenon in 1 Corinthians 12 may be different. May be different. There is some discussion in that area where Paul says, I pray uh, or don't, don't use my mind. It, it's, it's at great debate. Um, and so the two camps that generally get involved in this discussion will say, we believe in tongues, that it is a supernatural ability to share the gospel in a language you didn't learn. I had that happen to a friend of mine who was speaking one time in another country, and as he spoke, he still kept saying English, and the translator finally stopped and said, John, they understand you. I don't need to translate. Wow. <laughs> now, he wasn't using another language, and this is the, th the, the thought in Acts 2, that it is some supernatural event with people's ears or hearing. I'm just telling you what the idea is. The other one is that this is a unknown. By the way, the word unknown in 1 Corinthians is not present. It's not in the original text. It's not in the original language. It's, it's supplied. <clears throat> some idea of translating there. But that's the idea that there is some other kind of what we'd call ecstatic utterance that people have... I, that's about as far as I want to go today. I, we, can, we can get back and dig in. I just want to give you the, the landscape of the big territory, okay? Plus, I don't want to get in any more trouble. But. So, <clears throat> the second thing about this day, it's the in-gathering. In the second thing that's always been fascinating to me is that on the day of Pentecost, or the, 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 the Hebrew term is Shavuot, the, 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 the festival, the, the other great thing is that they celebrate and continue to that Shavuot or uh, Pentecost is the day that God gave the law to Israel. See, think about it. Passover, <clears throat> they got out of Egypt. About 50 days later, where are they? Huh? Mount Sinai. They're, they're out in the desert. They're, remember, they're taking laps. <clears throat> yeah, they're taking laps. <clears throat> So about 50 days later, the rabbis suggest that this is the time that God gave the law. Now, why that's important is this. These are a bunch of <clears throat> tribes of, or, or uh, children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these. And it's a confederation of a bunch of relatives. It's like a, when they leave Egypt, it's like a big family reunion. You know why they had so much trouble getting out, right? <laughs> I don't think we should go this way. <clears throat> yeah. 
That's what I was thought. It's a big family reunion. Everybody's got an opinion. You know. I mean, it's a big family is all it is. Relatives relate to one another. But in the giving of the law, the rabbis teach and taught that this is what made Israel the people of God. The thought is that God had actually tried to give the law to the Gentiles before. That's what they teach in rabbinical teaching. That God had tried to give the the law to to the Gentiles before and they just refused it. Israel was offered it and they took it. And this is what made them have a covenant with God. The covenant became the Torah. Think about this now. This is Cliff's interpretation. But I think it bears at least considering. As it is on Pentecost, what makes the people of God the reception and living by the Torah, what makes the people of God nowadays is the reception of the Spirit. That's what characterizes the people of God. That's what character? First John five. Go look at this. I said we know that we're His because of the Spirit which He's given us. First John chapter four, where where He says we know that we're His children because He's given us of His Spirit. And so, what characterized the Old Testament people were that was Torah or law, or the word just means instruction. Torah means instruct to 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 instruct. What constitutes the people of God now, if you will, is in fact. The presence of the Spirit of God. And so this seems to be the way God is working to help people understand that this is in, in, in what constitutes, what brings together now this new people of God from every race, every tribe, every, every grouping in the world is now the bestowing of the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> giving and receiving of the Spirit is what constitutes people of all races and nations to become the people of God. Now, let me give you a couple of resources here just real quick. I didn't put them on your paper. I've said before, and I think this is true, that the reason sometimes we don't talk about the Spirit as much, maybe, uh, even at the university. I've said before at the university where I teach, I don't think we discuss it. You know, we're, 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 we're trying to help them understand where John 3.16 is. You know, some of those kids, I'm thinking, have you never read the Bible? You know, <clears throat> maybe not. <clears throat> uh, so we're, we're working hard to get some superstructure underneath them. But I've said to them before, I, I, I have some concerns that we may not have talked enough or discussed enough or prayed with you enough with respect to this matter. Again, I'm back here. I, I think this is where there are a lot of exhausted Christians just trying to live the Christian life. Boy, it's, they're working hard, but they're just exhausted because there's some issue here that we've not helped people really understand. Or to experience, not just understand. And so <clears throat> here is, in my judgment, what we need to remember about this day. Number one, the, um, <clears throat> the coming or the bestowing of the Holy Spirit in the way that it is. Let, let me say a couple of things. Well, I was going to give you some resources, wasn't I? Chris, your brain's up here with me. You know? <clears throat> here's, a, here's an interesting book. I, you, know, you don't have to agree with everything. But it's by a guy named Francis Chan, C-H-A-N. Francis Chan, and his assessment, as I said, that we don't talk or discuss this that much, is because here's the name of his book, Forgotten God. Forgotten God. The third member of the Trinity. We, we, we've remembered God the Father. We've remembered Jesus the Son, but we've forgotten about the Spirit. It's a very interesting book, <clears throat> Forgotten God. Second book you might have if you're, Chan's a pretty uh, excitable guy. Um, Billy Graham wrote a book called The Holy Spirit 
activating God's power for your life. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> activating God's power for your life. Third one <clears throat> I recommend, and it's the second half of the book that's mostly identified in this area. <clears throat> it's called The Bookends of the Christian Life. The Bookends of the Christian Life. The Bookends by Jerry Bridges. Let me, let me just tell you what Jerry... Many Have y'all read Jerry... Nav Press and a lot of books. He's written a lot of great books. Yeah, The Pursuit of... Jerry says this in the book <clears throat> that he believes that... And, you know, he's old now. Older than me. <clears throat> and uh, he's kind of in the twilight of his writing career in life. And, and he made this assessment. He said, there are two bookends to hold, you know, the, the images of a bunch of books on a shelf that you want to hold them in the right place. And he said in the book, the, 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 the thesis of the book is this, that the reason that Christians have so much trouble living the Christian life, if you will, the transformed kind of life, is because they have one bookend. And that's justification by faith. It's true. That's a good bookend. Justification, that's one of the bookends you've got to have, that you can't be right with God by your own effort or energy. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's relying completely on the finished work of Jesus. That bookend you've got to have. But he said the second bookend that is often missing is life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is coming from a pretty conservative, uh, reformed guy uh, who's written a lot of it. But he's saying as he looks over his career of writing, and as he looks over his career of ministry, that this is the area that he gave the least amount of attention to. And so it's a tremendous book. Uh, a third book, a fourth, whatever, I don't keep count. I don't, you count. Here we go. The, the last one is How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozer. How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozer. Just a, it's a really helpful book from the standpoint he asks a lot of questions. Not like, you know, um, one of the questions is, uh, you know, does your life really need the Holy Spirit? That's the one I stopped on. Does your life really need the Holy Spirit? Or, you know, you're doing pretty well on your own. Is your, is your life pretty well managed in place? You, you know, let's be honest. I've, I've said before, you know, how many of us really need God in our life? Come on. We got jobs, money, health care, you know, friends. That's one of the great questions Tozer really asked. Do you, do, do, come on, let's be honest. Do you really, really? I'm, I'm going to help get you there, I hope, in this lesson. So let, let's talk about it. It's a promise kept. <clears throat> it's a promise kept. I want to run you through some verses uh, here. And if you have your table of contents, your Bible, open it up. Here's a, I'm going to just kind of kind of walk us through this. Or you have your, um, <clears throat> your phone open. You can get off Facebook here just for a second. But no, <laughs> I just had that default for my students, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's found in Ezekiel, that's part of the Old Testament, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, 782. Ezekiel 36, and probably a lot of you already know this verse, but let, let's just look at it uh, for a moment. <clears throat> because it, it, it comes at this issue <clears throat> of promise. <clears throat> and uh, Ezekiel 36, I'm going to just start at 24. It, Begins earlier than that, but just this matter. He says, I will take you, this is God speaking, I will take you from among the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all uncleanness. Drop down here, uh, verse, uh, where am I here? Yeah, uh, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone and your flesh and give you a heart of, I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you, which will cause you, notice how it says, which will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. How's that going to happen? New heart, new spirit. I want, to, I want to say something here now because I hear this often, not, not in here, but here around. People will say when they do something goofy or something wrong, they'll quote Jeremiah that says, well, the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? Wait a minute. The New Testament, the Old Testament promise in the New Testament is, we, what do we get when we put our trust and reliance in Jesus? What do we get? A new heart. Okay? A new one. Now, I'm not suggesting that people don't get tempted and they don't do dumb stuff. I've, I've done that myself. But well, let's, let's get recalibrated here to say the promise, if you will, of the new age or the new covenant is that God's going to give you a new heart. And, you know, I, I've told you, I, I pray Romans 2, 28 and 29 almost every day where it says he is a real Jew who is not one outwardly, but inwardly, not of the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. That's what being a Christian is. That the heart now loves things it used to hate and hates things it used to love. And this idea, even in the prophets, when you study the prophets, they kept saying, look, stop this talk about the circumcision of the flesh. That's not what, circumcise your heart. The prophets started saying, this is a, this is a concept that idea starts rolling the old Testament because God says, I got to give you a new one, a new one. So it's this recurring promise here. I will give you a new heart and I'll put my spirit within you. Then you'll walk in all the ways that I command you. E. Stanley Jones said it like this. I think that one time we, we sometimes think conversion or repentance is just a change in our thinking. And Jones made this observation when he said, if conversion doesn't convert what we love, something's wrong. It should convert what and who we love. Not just what we think or believe, but who and what we love. So this is a promise kept. Keep going to the right. I'm just going to try to walk us through this here. Go a couple of over, chapters over here. Joel. Joel is a minor prophet. Wouldn't you hate to go through life saying you're a minor prophet? No. <laughs> That's kind of tacky. I want to be a major prophet. Um, and this is, again, an Old Testament I'm trying to bring us forward here about the promise. It will come about at verse 28. After this, there's some statements that you might want to go back and read after this. It says after this, so you will know what's before that. Chapter. I'm sorry, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 28. I will pour out my spirit... On all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. See, here's the, here's the un, un, uniqueness of coming from Torah-based relationship, which is instruction, male, Jew-only, circumcised. To now... The people of God, male, female, old, new, slave, free, bond. Why? Because the Spirit is poured out on everyone. 
All those other distinctions are no longer necessary. Because the Spirit is what makes the people of God the people of God. And so Joel chapter 2, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, I'm going to take you over now to Acts 1. Acts 1. These are the words of Jesus here. You probably have heard these before. But Acts chapter 1. Jesus spends uh, that 40 days. Uh, We celebrated last week Ascension Day. Because Jesus, there's a day in the church calendar where we celebrate where Jesus ascended. This is Acts 1, where he's going back to heaven. Uh, and after, but before that, he presented himself alive, verse 3 of chapter 1, over a period of 40 days, speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. And then he gathered them together and he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had what? Promised. What did the Father promised? A new heart. New spirit. What did the Father promise? The pouring out of the Spirit on all people. Jesus said, now you got to wait. This is not done. This is not over. You must wait, if you will, for the promise that the Father's made. So Jesus knew and he instructed his disciples that what was about to happen on Pentecost in about 10 more days, just before he left, about 10 more days, God was going to fulfill a promise. That he made. So I want to ask you this. Do you and I live in the reality, the understanding of the promise? That the Christian life is not lived just in the life of strength and effort and energy. But in the fulfillment of the promise of God to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Is that a conscious awareness that we live in that promise? In fact, I I put this on the the handout there for you if you want to look at it here. What if this week you take one of these verses, and whether it's Acts 1-4, Joel 2, Ezekiel 30, what, what, what if you take one of those and you consciously claim or believe that the promise is for you? I, uh, some... About a year or so, well, it's been longer than that. I was working through 1 John. And uh, as I was working through it, I saw a phrase that kept occurring, so it kind of caught my attention. And it says this. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We've come to know and believe. And I think, you know, I don't hear a voice uh, Sometimes I hear a voice, it's Becky, but <laughs> generally that's the only voice I hear. <clears throat> uh, but I did have a sense that the Spirit of God was checking me up by saying, you have come to know, but you don't believe. I said, wait, wait a minute, hold it. No, no, no. You have come to know. You can quote it, you know where it is, you know where the location is. But when life gets rolling, you don't believe this. My response was, ouch. (laughs) Right? So it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to act in belief this week. To say, you know what? I'm going to act in belief that I have, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, the resource, the gift, the wonderful privilege of having the Holy Spirit in my life. That, that, that's, that's a conscious decision on our part. I don't, I don't think it's because God's trying to hold out on us. I think we just come to think that if we know it, we, that's it. 
I know it. I know it. I can quote the verse. I got it. But, I, you know, I, I know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God passes all our understanding. Guard your hearts. I know that, right? You hear that? Yeah, you know what? I don't do that all the time. <laughs> right? I don't say, okay, you're not going to be anxious about this. So what about this? The idea to say, I'm going to consciously believe that this is for me. This is a promise made by God. Now, you may have to be disabused of some ideas here. Some of us have these ideas that if the Spirit is with us, we feel this happens. I, I, just, I can't find any evidence for that stuff. I can tell you what I will show you here in a minute, what I think it is. But it's not a different feeling. It's not a different thing. It's a, it's a, it's a communion with God that we live by. Okay, let me give you the second one. I've got to hurry. We're going to sing here at the end. A presence within. It's a promise kept. Presence within. I'm fascinated by this from the standpoint that in the Old Testament, the peoples knew God's presence without. In the desert, they knew God's presence by night as a cloud of fire and by day a cloud that covered them up. And then they knew the presence of God as a, as a tabernacle or as a sanctuary. And they knew that. And so they you know, carted him around. And then they built the temple and they, they understood the presence of God. When I was in Israel, I think I've mentioned I've been there a couple of times, but um, at the Wailing Wall, there's this statement, the presence, the Shekinah presence never leaves this place. I took a picture of it. Shekinah means the kind of glowing glory. It just says the Shekinah of God never leaves this place. It's, see, it's a place in their thinking. It's a place. But in the New Testament... The scripture understands that this God who lived in that place or was, you know, I mean, he hung out there. He didn't, wasn't confined by it. Now lives where? In us. In us. And, and that idea of that, now God's presence is now, if you will, restored. Remember in the book of Revelation, I forgot the chapter. You go, that the tabernacle of God is where? Now, you ever heard this verse? Heard. 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 I just turned. Now, heard this. Um. I turned grades in this week. Um, the tabernacle of God is among men. Book of Revelation. Where does God hang out? Where does he dwell? Human beings. I couldn't find the quote. I read it. It's in my file somewhere. But Augustine, who was a pretty tied up, tightened up theologian, told people who were followers of Jesus, don't look for God outside. Look for Him within. This is Augustine. Don't look for Him outside. Do, do you have that same tendency I do? I think God's out there somewhere. He's running the country, running the world. I, I have those kind of thoughts. They're kind of my default. I rarely think of considering that this is a presence within. I mean, if I think about it, stop it. Oh, probably. But do you ever think you're feeling, oh, God, where are you? Right here. <laughs> right? I mean, really now, think about it. Where are you? I'm right here. A presence with, look, look here in John chapter 7. <clears throat> we spent so long in John, God may open automatically there. A presence within. 
Verse 37, this is the last, this is the Feast of Tabernacles where the uh, Jewish people would come and celebrate when they were in the desert and they would live in booths or flat top little shack thing like that for a few days and for a week. And then at the end, because they'd been in the desert, the priest would come out uh, on the last day, the eighth day of that celebration and had a big uh, gold pitcher uh, and would fill it full of water and then they would, in a processional singing and rejoicing, go to the temple and provide the, this, this, this water from the pool of Siloam, which was called living water because it was moving. See, water in a pool or water just in a resort, reservoir, is not, not living water. Living water has to be moving. And so they go to the pool of Siloam where it was moving and take it and pour it out. This is when Jesus, in front of everybody, says this. In, in King James, it says, now on the, on verse three, the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, when on Pentecost, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What's Jesus saying here? Hey, this is an internal presence. Look there. The rivers of living water from your innermost being on the inside. This is an inside job. It's not an outside job. It's an inside job. Where Jesus is saying to these people in an incredible ceremony. Listen. This is the spirit that's going to bring inside you, within you, rivers of living water if we would just pay attention to that. I like, I like the way John Wesley sort of rephrased this. He would always say that sort of in this particular area of Jesus' ministry, the, you know, his, his uh, teaching and his uh, 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 death and resurrection, it says that this is what Jesus did for us. And Pentecost, Wesley would often say it this way in some form. He'd say, and this is what God did in us. There's a lot of for us over here. He died on the cross. He taught us the way of God. He rose from the dead. He paid for our sins. That's what he did for us. This is what he wants to do now in us. In us. In our lives. In our experiences. Now, let me say here. This is... The understanding that, again, so many of us, me included, think there has to be some experiential feeling about all this. You know, I wrote in my notes, this understanding of a promise kept and a presence here for us, or, well, I'm ahead of myself now. This promise kept and then a presence within. If we overemphasize it, if we, you know, this is all internal, I, you know, God's in my soul. I want to say to you, there, there can be an overemphasis here. We call that mysticism. For mysticism tries to establish everything by how I feel about it. Or what do I think on the inside? The problem with that is that it dislocates us from God's word or what he's declared. And it becomes kind of an internal thing. I, I'm saying this is why it's so difficult, why we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. Because it is true, there's an internal presence. The presence of the Holy Spirit, rivers of living water in our innermost being. But it doesn't mean that we feel that way all the time or we make every decision based on experience. 
I'm going to say where each of these, there's, a, there's an unhealthy imbalance. So the idea of that there's a presence to live in. How often, how often do you or I just get quiet? I want to ask you to consider this. I think God's speaking all the time to us and trying to relate to us all the time. But if my phone keeps dinging all the time and I'm going to another appointment, if there isn't some space in my life for me to say, God, you're in here somewhere. I've put my faith and my trust in you. I want to... I want to experience this as well. Not just know it, but believe it. Be still. And then what? You'll know I am God. Not, not my ten, I'm just telling you my tendency is. I'm, you know, I'm getting ready for this summer and I've already got my books all stacked up. Becky's buying me a bus ticket to go somewhere. <laughs> I like to read, I like to write, and I stay busy like that. But there are times when I have to say, you got to stop this. You got to be still. And then you'll know I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. I've said to you before this this member of the Trinity, the Spirit, I think, is shy. Remember, Jesus said he doesn't talk about himself. He always glorifies Jesus. He's shy. And I'm not saying we're, listen, I'm not saying we're earning his presence. I'm not, I'm simply saying our lives are so messed up with technology and effort and cars and driving and answering the phone and doing stuff like that. I don't know how any of us can ever get a sense of that internal presence. When Becky and I go to Colorado and we just, we go to a place where our phones don't work and there's no television set. It's bad during the finals of NBA, but it's, it's doable. <clears throat> I told her, we went to that. Well, you guys sent us last year, but you let us come back. Uh, <clears throat> when I go to Glen Erie, I said, um, this place healed my soul in a day. My soul was healed it in a day. This isn't as complicated as we want to make it. The Spirit of God, if you put your faith in Jesus, is in you. His presence is there. There's a river of living water that you just got to dip your foot in or get a drink out of. His faithfulness is to say, think about it. Why why would God be picky about all? If he said, ever since I pulled this planet out of nothing, this is what I've been working toward, Cliff. Ever since I pulled this planet out of nothing, this is what I've been working toward. He's not stingy. He's not, he just, he's waiting, I think, for us to say, slow down enough where you can experience that river of living water. What if they determined to look within for God's presence in your life, not without? Don't look outside, look in quietly, reverently. But just say, God, I want to know you're there. He's there. It's just going to take some of the loudness and some of the 
distractions in our world to slow us down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're expecting, depending, relying on your provision. Now lead us as we live our lives with the realization of your power available to every one of us. May we honor you and glorify you in our lives. And may we experience your presence this week in new and wonderful ways. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.